Hello and welcome to the Thriving Abroad podcast, the weekly podcast where I discover through conversations with people living an international lifestyle and relocation experts what it really takes to thrive abroad. I'm your host, Louise Wiles, an expat, repat, author and a change and transition coach and consultant and I'm fascinated by the world of international mobility and cross-cultural living. And a very warm welcome to episode 81. I'm so happy that you're here joining me today. Now this is the fourth in the new series of episodes called Thriving Through Transitions. I have some amazing guests lined up, all with fascinating stories to share about their international adventures and what has helped them to ride the waves of transition and to thrive in their international lives. This is episode four in the series. To listen to the others, look for episodes 78, 79 and 80 and the associated blog posts at thrivingabroad.com. Now, if you'd like to receive the show notes containing a summary of all the key messages from each of the podcast conversations, register for the newsletter and I'll be in touch with a link to those show notes. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Maya Frost. Maya is an author, educator and strategist. She's lived internationally for many years and currently helps creative women located all over the world design change they love. In this conversation, Maya talks about her negative experience of change as a child and how she broke through to discover a more positive model her international life with four teens, being a victim to change and her tips for proactively creating change and growing new ideas in your life. Maya's wisdom really does shine through in this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So hello and welcome Maya to the Thriving Abroad podcast and today's conversation. It's lovely to have you joining us today. Thank you so much, Louise. I'm happy to be here. Great to have you here. So just to start um, the conversation, obviously, I'm creating this series of thriving through transition conversations. Um, and so I'd love to know a little about about your story of change and transition, and what role and impact change has played in your life up till now. Sure. Well, uh, I think for me, really change started seriously from birth because I was adopted when I was two days old by a family that had been waiting to adopt for some time, but in the meantime had become pregnant. And so after they adopted me, my uh, adoptive brother was born and it was actually a very tumultuous childhood. Uh, My my adoptive parents divorced when I was five. We went to live with uh, my mother's parents and uh, my grandfather died of a heart attack soon thereafter while mowing the lawn. So it was just sort of one thing after another as a child. And my mother remarried when I was 10. And that started a whole new kind of change in my life. But basically, I grew up with a family that viewed change as the enemy. Uh, Change was always unwelcome. It was always forced upon you. It was always something that led to despair. And and many times financial ruin uh, or other kinds of disasters. So not surprisingly, I grew up really trying to avoid change at, at all costs. I can understand that. <laughs> that kind of yeah, framework for it. Yes. Yeah. And then and then so as an adult, 
I know you've lived in various locations around the world. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, things really changed when I went to college. Uh, I spent my senior year traveling around with a, as part of a study group, and we stayed in nine different countries in Asia for a month at a time. And I'd come from a very small town in Oregon, in the US, a town of 350 people. <laughs> and so uh, this was just a huge expansion of my worldview, my perspective. And I, I also just made so many mistakes. I failed in so many ways in college and on that trip. And, and then I graduated into a recession and tried to get a job at a very, very difficult time, you know, fresh out of college, all hopeful and expecting the world to hand me something. But of course, it wasn't the way it worked. But the first job I got was teaching English in Japan, going back to Asia. So despite my parents' concerns, because I had student loans to pay, um, I went ahead and moved to this very small town in Japan. And uh, I was matched with a teaching partner who happened to be uh, a young man who grew up 10 miles away from me in Oregon, also in a small town. Wow. <laughs> we were teaching what a coincidence. Eh? And we ended up getting married. And we had our first two children in Japan. We were very young in our early 20s. Mm -hmm. And um, from there, we went to the States for 10 years and spent time. We had two more daughters. And uh, we spent time there. And then Right, in 2005, and we had four teenagers at the time, we decided that we wanted to spend time abroad as a family before they all scattered. And so we sold everything and moved to Mexico. And everyone thought we were insane <laughs> because we had you know, kids in high school and, and going through the process of getting into college and we were yanking them out of that track completely. And we didn't have jobs to move to. We were both doing businesses online. We weren't making very much money. Um, but we loved it and we were happy, our kids were happy and we had to figure out a way to make it all work. A year after Mexico, we moved to Argentina and uh, I knew that so many people were asking me, well, how are you managing to get your kids into high school and college? And, and they were also starting to graduate from college at 20 instead of, you know, 21, 22. And so I decided to pitch the idea of a book and I ended up with a book deal with uh, Random House and published a book called The New Global Student. And that was in 2009. Fantastic. And actually, I and that, just, can, can I just pause you there just, just to go back to that? Because sure. I think as a parent of two teens, um, <laughs> the thought of, of, of moving them um, out of their schools and going to Mexico, I mean, has some allure, allure definitely, but... I've, I've just, I mean, were there challenges in the sense of, you know, the children being furious, they were being taken away from, from their friendship groups and so on? And, and how did they respond to that? Or was it just such a great adventure that everyone was kind of engaged in it and, and keen to do it? Well, it was a mixed bag. But, you know, one thing that we decided early on was that if you have four teenage girls in your house, there are going to be good days and bad days, even if you stay home. There are going to be days when they're upset and crying. There are going to be days when they feel like the world is against them. There are going to be days when they aren't motivated to study or are motivated to study, but don't want to talk to you or do anything else. I mean, it's going to be a crazy time anyway. So we thought maybe change the circumstances and have them focus on that instead of their internal moods. <laughs> and let's see how that goes. But mostly it was just an opportunity to 
do things differently for all of us. And in a big way, they began to see us more as peers. We played more of a role as a peer than as a parent in some ways because we were all learning together. We didn't have all the answers about life in Mexico or life in Argentina. And in fact, they had better language skills by far than we did in Spanish. So mm -hmm. we relied on them. And in some ways, that really gave them confidence and the opportunity to sort of rise above to sort of an adult level. And so despite the concerns about, you know, friends and, you know, just when they were going to come back and, you know, there were a lot of big questions. One of our children was actually on an exchange in Brazil while we were in Mexico. So she left for Brazil. We moved, got rid of everything, moved to Mexico, and then she came back to Mexico. She never went back to Oregon. So wow. she had a, and then we moved to Argentina. So definitely she had the hardest time and she was very clear about how hard it was for her. Um, but, you know, I think it speaks volumes that three of the four live abroad now <laughs> mm -hmm. and are very happy in their lives outside the U.S. And so it just sort of became a huge change for our family in terms of viewing our possibilities as individuals and, and just what we wanted for the future. Mm, mm, mm. How interesting. And I, I think for me, it kind of links really probably to a bit to where we are sitting in the UK at the moment with sort of the challenges around education and schools having been shut and so yes. much discussion about the impact on children and teens and you know the fact that they're not following the, the, the usual path and it's a disaster <laughs> for everyone and I keep right. asking myself you know how can it how can we how can we you know switch it around and, and say it's not a disaster there are other ways of looking at this and other possibilities and other ways of making it a success and that, you know I know it's very different because people aren't moving countries but it's just having a different approach I suppose to your thoughts around bringing up your children and following the the, the required path or not following the required path or following it in a different country and so on and 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 approaching challenge in a different way would does that well sense to you? Yeah, I think, you know, no one likes to have change forced upon them. And that's really been the issue with lockdown is that, you know, everyone's being sent to their room, basically. <laughs> no one, you know, no one's going to be happy about that under any circumstances. And so what we can do when we're in that situation is find a way to have a sense of control. And maybe that's choosing how you spend your time. Maybe that's choosing other, you know, enrichment options outside of school, for example. Oh, maybe that's moving, maybe that's going on a trip, maybe that's you know changing the way you think about what you and your children want to do the next few years. Mm -hmm. So, and I think partly because school's gone online, uh, a lot of families are really rethinking their situation and, and many parents are working online and now a lot of things are opening up and they're seeing that well, if I can do this from anywhere, why are we here? Are there reasons that we want to be here? And if they're not, then what are our other options? So, mm. yeah, yeah. No, I really like that that sort of switch in in, in the way we think about it. And I think, yeah, I, rather than so much of the commentary recently, well, in the last few weeks since lockdown, or well, last week actually, we're only one week into lockdown, it always feels longer, but uh, yes. when it happens, you know, everyone's like, oh, there, you know, there's not enough of the educational content online with many of the, particularly the state schools. And, um, but there was no talk about 
Well, let's think about other opportunities for learning, you know, other places that kids can go and, you know, other resources that can be made available. I mean, I think probably that will start happening now. But initially it was so much about what was not rather than what could be, which was really frustrating me. But I think that's a you know really important point as you that you make, you know, we have to find a way to have a sense of control and um and to look yes. at the situation. Yeah, very, very true. Um, it's also true that, at least in the States, that for a lot of private schools uh, from kindergarten all the way through university, they're very nervous because they're losing students at an alarming rate who didn't come back after the fall or after the mm -hmm. summer last year. And um, they're having to rethink their strategy about attracting and keeping students. and you know, everybody is rethinking education around the world. So if not now, you know, when will we ever have a better time to rethink and try new things? Yeah, yes, I, I, that's what I, I've been hoping and the conversation would lead to. Uh, just a rethink about how education is done in many ways. And when we have a very exam-based education here in the UK, <laughs> education is all about the exam rather than the sort of study and the enjoyment of learning, which just seems, and, you know, being curious about things and, and, and wanting to study for that benefit rather than you know, the end result and exam. So I think in the UK, we have a great question to ask around all of that. And, and in other countries as well, you know, in Asia, for example, there's so much emphasis put on the entrance mm -hmm. exams. In the US, we've got the SAT and the ACT. And, uh, you know, in fact, a lot of the universities are in the US are, this year are saying, oh, you don't have to take the entrance exams, you know, and that's mm -hmm. just been a huge relief to students. Now it frees them up. But the, the other thing is that you know, we have this practice and this way of approaching things that, you know, you're, you're, this year spent studying, preparing for the exam, taking the test, doing as well as you can, getting into school. Well, what if you remove all that? A lot of students are sort of at their wits end. They don't, they are not in the habit of thinking about creating their own style of education and learning the things they want to learn or the things they have to learn, but in the way that they want to. So, for those who rise to the challenge, it's an incredible opportunity, but there are also students who are struggling with it and need some direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I was having a similar conversation with someone and, and that's exactly what they were saying. You know, these students, particularly students who perhaps have a gap year as well, but gap years this year, you know, this year can't be the gap years mm -hmm. of the past, you know, with traveling right. to far fun places. So what do they do with that time? And there's a whole question around, yeah, how they use that time productively and as well as yes. enjoying it of course yeah sure yeah. so um so so you've experienced all of this change and um yeah it's been changed that you've chosen to make particularly the the, the move to Mexico and then I presume to Argentina am I right in saying that am absolutely right? and, and in fact we had our youngest daughter choose the place after Mexico since she had the longest time to be there with us and to attend school ah, so okay. she's the one who picked Argentina and interestingly she still lives here <laughs> oh, okay and had All she been people. to Argentina before no none of us had no, 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 no. not even oh, okay. once no <laughs> So we sort of talked a bit about sort of reacting to change, you know, and you said no one wants change forced on them. Right. And, um, you know, I think there is this kind of, when we talk about change, we're often um, sort of making this balance between change that's reactive, reactive to life events that we just can't control. We have to, COVID being one, 
and you know other life events and then proactive decisions where we we make the decision for a change of some kind and I think for those who are reacting to change often there's this sense of feeling a victim um, perhaps suffering a bit from loss or the trauma of a bad situation um, what yes. advice do you have to people about um, dealing with with that very important because yes especially so many people, you know, you, you look at a job loss, a home loss, you know, the loss of a, mm. of a loved one. I mean, there are so many changes that we don't choose that we have to yeah. find a way through. Yeah. Um, but so much research has been done on resiliency and how people respond successfully or not to all different kinds of challenges in life. And again and again, what comes up is that those who uh, reduce the time that they spend resisting the change and mourning the previous life they had before that change. Those who reduce that time are far more likely to navigate that transition in a successful way that is fulfilling to them and leads to something better. So it's, it's a challenging thing to stay, you know, to, to face change and move forward because it's tempting to wallow, it's tempting to mourn, and there's real grief and anger that needs to be processed, and we need to take time to do that. But it's also too easy sometimes to, to stay in that, this happened to me mentality, right? Mm -hmm. You're the victim, this happened to me, this happened to me, and now everything's terrible. Mm -hmm. But we have to make that decision to make the shift from this happened to me to, and then I decided to, whatever. Because once we recognize that we have the control even to make small changes in our routine, in our attitude, in you know, just how we spend our time, all the things that we can do to make ourselves feel healthier, what we eat, uh, if we're exercising, if we're getting outdoors, how are we supporting ourselves socially? Are we reaching out and contacting people? Are we having conversations that are meaningful? Are we being vulnerable with people? We have the power to make those choices. And those are the choices that are going to lead us to uh, move through that transition in a successful, fulfilling way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely agree. I think um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the story we tell ourselves, isn't it? I think in a certain way, and, and we can be stuck in one story that isn't particularly helpful. Um, sure. But pivoting that story and, and, and then looking forward um, as tough as that can be. But yes. I, I saw once this lovely diagram that explained grief, I mean, it, not necessarily grief from the loss of a loved one, but it could be. Um, and, you know, it, it was just a circle and it said initially that circle is full of that grief. That's your focus. That's everything. It's all consuming, which of course right. it is. But then gradually as time goes on, that circle, that your life grows. And so the circle around that circle of grief expands. And it's not to say that grief goes um, and you don't need to acknowledge it sometimes and that it isn't a part of you because it absolutely is. Right. But as you expand your life around it, you then find, you know, other interests and um, purpose in life that just helps you cope with that. that and, it, and it can expand your, your life and enrich your life in so many ways mm. if you're willing and able to work through it and move forward. So. Yeah, yeah. And I think I suppose the important thing to say about all of that is, you know, that point of acceptance is, is you know, I guess, what takes the time of it. I remember doing a podcast just after the first 
lockdowns everywhere started back in April, March, April last year. And I was talking to a counsellor and she was saying, you know, we're we're at the point where everyone just needs to focus on accepting where we are because this is just so enormous and different. It will take mm-hmm. us all time to, you know, um, understand and get to the point that we can say, okay, I'm, I can accept that this is where I am. And now once I've accepted it, I can start moving on. It doesn't mean you agree, you enjoy it, you love it. It just means that you recognise that actually you can't change this, this big pandemic, but you can change um, the way you react to it um, and your attitude to it, I suppose, as you were just talking about earlier and choosing how to spend your time and taking some control for that. Um, so yeah, I, I can see how that all fits together. Would that does that make does that sort of fit with what you were saying? Absolutely, and you know it's also important to remember that everyone's different, and watching someone else adapt in a positive way that seems unreachable to you, uh, you we shouldn't compare ourselves to others. We can mm-hmm. take inspiration from them, but we all have to do this in our own way. And right now, in the last four months, I've worked with over 50 women around the world who are making all kinds of changes during a pandemic, during a recession, in the face of job loss, even after losing individuals they love. And so they were ready, you know, they were ready to take control. And they did it in very, some very big sweeping ways, like starting a business or even smaller ways, like changing their ideas about what happened to them and how they want to tell their story and move forward. So everybody does it in a, in a, at a different pace, but don't compare yourself to others, but also don't miss out on the opportunity to be inspired by the stories of others who are finding ways to work through it, because I think we can all learn from that. Yes, yes, I agree. And I was going to ask you actually about that and, and the people you're working with, because I guess we're talking a bit about sort of reacting to a change that has happened and we, we don't control. But of course, there are changes that we choose to make proactively. So, OK, we might respond to a job loss by a decision to look for a new job or to start a business. Um, so when when thinking about more proactive change, um, I think I think the thing I, I notice is that yeah, we can get, especially at the beginning of the year, <laughs> the new year, mm-hmm. we get very enthusiastic about, okay, this year is going to be different. Um, and I'm going to make the changes that I've been promising to myself I'm going to make for some time, yeah. perhaps. And get very enthusiastic for a few first few weeks, few months. And, and then the momentum and motivation can begin to wane. So I'm just wondering what advice you have for people in that respect, you know, when yeah, the excitement of this change you're planning to make um, perhaps begins to go, possibly more obstacles you know, keep popping up and um, it seems more difficult than you perhaps anticipated. Um, what advice can you give to people in that respect? Sure. Um, I'm not a surfer myself, but I am absolutely mesmerized by surfers and surfing. And so I like to think about that and when I'm looking at change or talking to other people about change, because for one thing, you know, a surfer goes out into the waves, paddles out, and the first thing they have to do is wait, right? They put themselves in the right place, but they can't control when the waves are coming. They can't control the size of those waves. 
the pace of those waves, <laughs> they just have to wait. And there's a lot of waiting involved, even when we're proactive. We're still waiting to hear back about that job. We're still waiting to hear about that lease agreement or getting tickets or see if that country is open so I can go there. Or, you know, there are things that we are not able to control. And so there's a lot of waiting. And it's easy to lose motivation when we're waiting for someone to make a decision about something that's important to us. Um, but you have to think about that surfer. The surfer has to learn patience. They have to wait for the right wave to come. Now, some of those waves are going to be gentle. Some of them are going to be refreshing. Some of them are going to be exhilarating. And some of them are going to cause them to wipe out. You know, that will happen. And just as you're facing a change, you may be stepping forward and trying something big and new that is maybe beyond your level at that moment. And you will be disappointed. You will disappoint yourself. You might disappoint others. And that's okay what the surfers do. They get right back on the board and they wait for the next one. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea of not resisting the waves, but waiting for them, rolling with them and rising to the surface if you get knocked down is really a powerful idea when we think about how we move forward. We're not going to be able to change everything ourselves. We're not going to be able to change the timing in every case. We've got to learn some patience and we've got to learn to take advantage of the lulls. So what can you do while you're waiting? I mean, that in itself is a huge skill to develop. You know, how can you focus on your research or make social connections or improve your understanding of what you're trying to do uh, or find mentors or, you know, what can you do while you're waiting? Use that time. That's really a, a really a, a big difference between the ones who make really quick progress and those who uh, languish because they've used that waiting time. They didn't just wait for the next thing to happen before they started up again. Mm, mm, yeah, I, that's a really great analogy. I love that. That certainly helps me when I think about some projects I've currently got. And I love the sort of the idea of positioning yourself as a surfer you know and I think that's so true if you're running a business for example you know you position yourself and you, you know, take some action and I think often the, the challenge I have is taking the action and just then letting it go um you know I kind of want to hang on to it and influence it some way but sometimes you know often you can't you you make an approach or you you know I don't know, try a different approach for marketing or whatever um, do everything you can with it. And then at some point, you've just got to say, okay, that's done. I can't influence it anymore. Let's just see what comes back. And I suppose that's the wave, isn't it? Waiting for the wave and, and learning exactly. from what kind of wave comes back. You know, is it the wave you wanted or not quite? And then what do you adjust to? Yeah. Mm. And also, you know, think about in terms of, you know, if you get knocked down by whatever it is that you've attempted to do, <clears throat> what what lifts you? What gives you room to breathe? You know, what are your go-to strategies for yourself for becoming, you know, gaining that sense of momentum and motivation again? What, what strategies do you use personally to help you rise up? Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And um, that, that's kind of created another thought in me and that's around, you know, change. When we want to make change, we, we sort of, think about something going from A to B or a project or you know, whatever the change is actually coming to fruition. But it usually takes time. And, 
you know, I suppose if I compare this to moving abroad to a new location, you make the decision, you pack up, you move, you arrive. And then I often think that's when the hard work starts because then you've got to adjust <laughs> and transition to into your new life. So, you know, what has your experience of that sort of transition experience been? And what tips can you offer people who are perhaps, you know, settling into a new job, into a new life in a new location and and perhaps feeling doubts and uncertainty about it? Uh, well, you're absolutely right that you have to give yourself time. It's very easy to get caught up in the excitement of the move itself and then have a bit of a lull when you arrive and unpack and then you're like, well, now what? I, you know, I didn't think beyond this point. I was just planning to get here. Now what? Um, and the same thing for starting a new, a new role or, or whatever it might be. And it's important to recognize that you, whatever you did before this, it took time to build that. And you have to have that sense of patience have that sense of waiting for the natural waves to come that will help lift you to the next level while you're using that time to, to learn as much as you can. So I think in the beginning when you're first settling in, especially in a new move is, you know, finding comfort, like where can you shop for food that gives you a sense of comfort? What activities can you connect to? Is it a yoga class? Is it a, you know, a book group? What can you find in terms of your social structure to help build that foundation that will allow you to have a, to, to thrive in your new situation. Um, so finding that, giving yourself time, um, finding that sense of comfort. And the other thing is recognizing that you don't have to know everyone. You don't have to go to all the events, meet all the people, join all the, you know, Facebook groups and do all that sometimes less is so much more really what really helps in the beginning especially as having two or three people that you really connect with and um and turning to them for support and being support for them as well and learning from them learning what what tricks they've used to to be able to be successful in that situation so time comfort and depth go for depth rather than breadth you don't need a huge group <laughs> of support that may come but in the beginning, go to the low hanging fruit, make friends with your neighbor, the first person that you connect with and go have coffee with them, you know, use, start building in a very um, slow pace, but one that allows you to feel fulfilled while you're doing it and not scattered and frantic. Yeah, that was great advice. And actually that kind of links into the next question I wanted to ask, which is about having fun. <laughs> process of change. And I guess that, you know, making friendships and, and um, the social side of, of life definitely, hopefully, injects some fun. Um, but what part, and when you work with your clients, do you, how do you encourage fun and sort of a bit of a lightheartedness? Because I think sometimes when we're making change of, of some sort, we can get so intense, can't we, about it all? Yes, yes. Um, so what advice do you have around you know, having some fun and enjoying the process? I think um, really embracing your curiosity is key and so it's you know going to new restaurants trying new food trying you know changing your hair changing the colors you wear whatever you can do personally in your space you know setting up your room in a certain way or starting your a routine that's a little bit different than you did before maybe you're doing a different kind of exercise or you're going for a walk in a new place you know there's a there's a new book out by dr sanjay gupta called keep sharp and it's about building it's keep sharp build a better brain at any age. And it talks about the power of 
those small changes to increase our brains, our ability to be flexible, our ability to learn and stretch and grow. And even the smallest thing, one of the things he mentions is like, you know, have a family meal where everybody eats with the opposite hand than they're used to. And <laughs> it's just stretching yourself in small ways and making it fun like a game because no one is expected to do well at using your alternate hand, you know, that's the fun of it. No, you know, no one's expected to do well when they're learning a new dance or a new exercise or, or, you know, making their way around the city and getting lost. And, and it's okay to just have fun with it and release yourself of this idea that you have to be perfect at it. You know, that's the joy of it. And that's the benefit for your brain because you're learning something new. Yeah. Oh, well, that, I must another book to add to my long list of books to read. But that sounds like a great one, and um, yeah, links to. It's funny because now as we are at home again, my kids are studying online and everything. I've we, we've all started an exercise program, <laughs> and it, but it's really interesting. They're having fun with it. You know, they're trying different ones, and um, they're sticking with sure. it, now, which is great. And I think that underlines the point, doesn't it? That it has to be fun, otherwise we give up. We get if we get too intense about it. Um, so yeah, making and building some fun into the process is really important. Um, exactly. So when you're working with with your clients. Um, you know, we often talk about having a strategy for, for creating change and working through change. Do you have a specific process that you encourage people to follow um, or does it depend on the individual and, and what they're trying to achieve? Uh, that's a good question. Well, it does depend a lot on the individual and, and what they're looking to, to create. Um, mm-hmm. But in general, having a strategy, just, you just look at it as this, you, it saves you so much time, energy, and money because you're not going here and there trying to figure out what to do next. You've got a plan. And purpose of having a strategy is, first of all, to gain clarity because that's really what is going to ensure that you're successful. You need to develop a very clear idea of what it is you're trying to create, what is important to you, what is the direction you're going toward. And so having that written down is really powerful and a much greater place to start than just saying, well, I'm going to try a bunch of things and see what sticks. <laughs> you know, so, uh, so that clarity is really important. And then really the role of the strategy is to create order out of chaos because by having even just, and I'm a big believer in very simple strategies like three steps or five steps, you know, very clear, very clear understanding of what's next and what to do if that particular one doesn't lead where you thought it would. Um, because I think, you know, it's really easy to get a really complicated plan and, and build a whole long, you know, business plan or idea about what you're trying to create, you know, fill a journal with all these thoughts. And that's great in the process of thinking about what you want. But when you're actually trying to make it happen, you need a strategy. And, uh, and, and I guess my best advice would just be, first of all, do what you need to do to get clear about what you want to accomplish first. And then the strategy part will be so much easier. And then keep your steps to three or five steps that are doable. You know, something you, you know you can achieve. Start with some easy ones that you know you can accomplish that will help you build a sense of momentum and confidence. Mm. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. And in terms of just, just around the whole issue of clarity, because I think sometimes that's exactly the problem. People want to make a change and they think they know what they want to make, but they don't actually really have that clarity around what they really want to achieve. Um, exactly. So how do you encourage or how do you help your clients to really get clarity on, on that, on what they're wanting to achieve? 
Well, it's funny because I work with creative women and they tend to have a lot of ideas, which mm -hmm. I love, but mm -hmm. it, it's very easy to get sort of paralyzed by, you know, idea overload. It's like, well, then I can do that. And then I can do that. <laughs> like, well, first, the first thing you have to do is pick one thing, pick mm -hmm. one direction. And it doesn't mean you can't pursue all of those ideas you have, but start with one. And that's a much easier said than done <laughs> because it's, it's those other ideas that get a sidetrack because it's like, well, while I'm at it, why don't I do this one too? And yeah. then the next one is like, well, that worked pretty well. So why don't I try that same thing with this thing over here? Well, no, stick to the plan. <laughs> you can use the same set of same set of steps when you follow that idea. But right now, focus on this one. And that doesn't mean there's not room for serendipity because there is, there are always going to be surprises. And, um, and that's, that's good. That means you're learning and you're, you're able to adapt if you figure out a way to incorporate that. Uh, but I think really the idea of having a strategy is giving you some breathing room because you don't have to hold all these thoughts in your head. You don't have to lie awake at night, you know, thinking about all these other directions. It really <laughs> helps you focus and it also is a way to calm down a bit. And yes, we need energy and excitement but we also need some clarity and a sense of direction. So that's really the important thing is, is choosing one thing and then trying to go deeper into that. And again, it may be that you have a strategy for how you wanna do exercise. You know, Maybe that's the one thing you wanna focus on right this week or this month or this year. And maybe that you have several strategies going at once, but don't start them all at once. Start with one thing and then build on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's just a, this is so topical to me because this morning I sat down. And I don't know whether you have a word for the year. I mean, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Yes. I start and then I don't. But anyway, this morning I was just doing I do some journaling, not every day, but sometimes. And today I just felt called to do it. And then at the end I went right. Okay, my two words for this year are focus and finish <laughs> because I am so good at ideas and having yeah I probably if I look around my desk now I've got probably about 10 things open um <laughs> that need to be filed put away and the one thing I mean I've got the one big thing also there but I yeah I, I love being creative and having ideas but actually finishing is often the challenge so um, hearing you say all of that has just emphasized and underlined <laughs> my two key words for this year. They're perfect. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. I think you've shared so much really helpful sort of information and advice and insight um, in this conversation. So much, much appreciate it. I've got one final question for you, and that is relating to international life. And because the podcast is called Thriving Abroad, I'm going to put you a bit on the, stop, um, on the spot and ask you what would be your top tip for building a thriving life abroad? Oh, that is an excellent question. I would say um, friendship even if it's one good friend, and maybe that's your spouse. But if you're with one good friend that you can laugh with, that you can learn from, that you can go do other things with, maybe that's one of your children, you know? But I think friendship is really key. It doesn't mean you have to belong to a lot of groups or anything like that. It's just, do you have someone you can turn to, to go, go have some fun? 
uh, to yeah. let off steam, to brainstorm, to go have coffee, to go to a new place that you haven't seen before. Um, I think friendship is really, really key. And small scale is, is fine. <laughs> you don't need a lot. <laughs> oh, dear. No, I could, yeah, no, I can definitely underline that, certainly from my experience of um, moving and settling in. And I know how important and what difference you know, finding those friendships of depth made, made to my experience. Um, but then also, I'm just thinking about now, as you said that, though, and, you know, being in lockdown and being at home with the family, you know, the friendship that we have within the family and the fun that we can all have together. That's so important too right now. So I think it's a connection too. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. Now, how can people learn more about you and connect with you if they'd like to do so? Uh, You can go to my website. It's mayafrost.com. That's M-A-Y-A frost, F-R-O-S-T.com. And I'm also on Instagram at change.artist. And yeah, I'm on LinkedIn as well under Maya Frost. But really all of that information is on my website at mayafrost.com. Okay, great. And is the information about your book there? Because I'm just thinking your book is absolutely something my audience will definitely be interested in. So, okay, (laughs) fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's been lovely meeting you and, and talking to you today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye for now. And thank you for listening. I hope you found great value in this conversation and a huge thank you to Maya for her insights and advice. To learn more about Maya and her business, go to mayafrost.com. That's it for today. Remember to pop over to the thrivingabroad.com website to register for the newsletter and then you'll receive the valuable podcast show notes with a summary of key messages from this conversation and others. Meanwhile, stay safe and well wherever you are in the world. I will be back soon with the next instalment in the Thriving Abroad podcast. Bye-bye for now.